Welcome to this conversation. I'm Teresa Keller, your host, and my guest today has a story to be told, a long career in the military, and he's just getting ready to be deployed to Korea for additional service, government service as a civilian. My guest today is Vernon Miles. Vernon, welcome to this conversation. Well, thank you, ma'am, and thank you for having the opportunity to talk to you today. Well, you know, I just met you recently, and you just did the thing that surprised me. Well, I am old, but everybody calls me something that makes me feel old, but you call me ma'am all the time. Is that a military thing, or is that just because I'm old as dirt? No, ma'am, that's just the way that my parents brought me up. So to say ma'am to anybody, no matter the circumstances, you always call women ma'am? It depends, unless I'm really familiar with them. It's just a sign of respect. Most gentlemen, sir. The first thing when we're talking about respect is, let me say what respect I have for you, just knowing a little bit about the career that you've had. And I'm so looking forward to hearing more. Well, thank you. I mean, it's really been a true honor and privilege to be able to, to represent the United States as I have for almost my entire life. Well, we're going to go back to the beginning. Once again, you're getting ready to be deployed to Korea. Let's let's start with just a headline, a sentence or two about what your mission is in going to Korea to serve as a civilian in the government. Yes, ma'am. Um, I will be serving as a ex, as the deputy director of exercise and plans uh, for the United States Forces Korea. And that means exactly what. Uh, that means I will be responsible for for setting up and developing exercises that we uh, do with our partners and allies, uh, the South Korean military, and with other allies that that may participate within the exercises as well as U.S. forces. Well, we'll we'll just have to be patient and get back to that because that is a fascinating Sorry. topic and there's much to be told. But let's just start about you said you had served almost all of your life. When did you go into the military and why? I was born into the military. I was born into a military family on an Air Force base, uh, an old base is closed called Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York. I had a grandfather and uncle who served in World War II and another uncle that served in the Korean War. My father is actually an Air Force officer, was a veteran after 25 years. I've never really lived in any place longer than three or four years, and I've always grown up, grown up in and around the military, so I decided to to go ahead and pursue a military career. Uh, and I started that at a small school up the road called VMI, the Virginia Military Institute. It's interesting. I didn't know that your your past had brought you so close to this area. Oh, yes, ma'am. And I decided after a couple of years, college was not for me at that time. And I joined the Army to become what's called a warrant officer and a helicopter pilot. Now, for those who don't know, a warrant officer is a tactical and technical expert in their career field. So for me, that was in flying and aviation. But understanding that education was extremely important, I went back to college while on active duty and finished up my undergraduate degree while stationed in West Germany. Now, where did the VMI fit in there? I got a little bit lost. I left the VMI and then joined the Army because I found out I've always wanted to be a pilot, and I found out I could be a pilot in the Army as a warrant officer without a college degree. You talked about your father and your grandfather. You certainly followed in their paths in the military in general, were, were either of them pilots or did something similar that inspired you? Yes, ma'am. My father was was an Air Force pilot uh, and was in uh, Air Force Special Operations for many years in, in Vietnam and Thailand. 
And when you say in special operations, what does that mean? Um, that means that they flew u- unique kind of aircraft doing particular uh, types of missions. And in his case, one of the missions that he flew was along a trail in Vietnam called the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is a trail that a lot of North Vietnamese used to use to send personnel and supplies from North Vietnam into South Vietnam. Well, his mission was to drop out sensors over the uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail and then monitor those and then call in airstrikes on the trails when they picked up any movement of personnel or equipment along the trails. So that's kind of special operations do unique kind of missions that they're specially trained for, have special aircraft or other equipment for, for those missions. Your father and grandfather must have inspired you in a positive way, I'm imagining, or did you just feel like this is a tradition that I should carry on? No, ma'am. I mean, they 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 both inspired me in a very positive way. And it wasn't necessarily a, a sense of, oh, I needed to do this as much as it was. They instilled in me a sense of duty, a sense of duty to to serve others. Um, and so that's really why why I wanted to go into the military. And and again, being a pilot has that mystique of being a pilot, especially a military pilot. And that's really what I what I try to do. You know, I don't know how to ask this question, and it sounds rude and obnoxious, but it seems like such a manly thing to be a pilot. Is that kind of what you meant when you said the mystique? No, ma'am. Um, no, not really. I mean, I've never really wanted to do it up to that time. I never really, really want to do anything else but to be a pilot. Not only was, was, was I a pilot, but I have three younger brothers, and all of them went into the Air Force. Um, one of them became a pilot. One became a a, a flight engineer on an MC on a C-130. The one became a loadmaster on C-130s. So we all sort of had that, you know, not necessarily fly, we all had that flying bug, but we all also had that sense of duty, honor, country. Well, that's an inspirational. And let me hasten to say that I do realize and respect and expect that women will want to be, can be, and can excel at being pilots. (laughs) I didn't mean to insinuate anything else, but traditional ways of thinking just come up to me. So where all did you go in your service? Where all did you serve? Like I said, uh, one of my first duty stations, well, I went to uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It was my first duty station. Um, And there I was deployed to several locations, including Honduras. And we're deployed in Honduras during a time in which, you know, nowadays we have GPS on phones. Or Back then in the early 80s, we didn't have GPS. So a lot of the maps in Honduras were white that said data not available. So every time you go out and fly, you'd be flying into someplace that no one's ever really been to before. I remember doing missions where we would carry uh, our missions down there varied. But one of the missions that we did was one of what we called MIDRAPs, our medical missions in which we would take doctors, nurses, veterinarians, and dentists, and we fly out to villages in the middle of no place in the jungles of Honduras, and we land, and then they would treat all the local villagers. I remember one time we were at one location, and the dentist was given class on how to brush teeth. Well, now that sounds common to you and I today. Back then in these locations, one old man stood up and said, my grandfather used to have one of those, and it was a toothbrush. And, and so they, you know, we were, we were providing these services to these people who had never had this before. A couple of times while I was down there doing these missions, we actually had to medevac or to take uh, people from villages back to hospitals. 
on a couple of those missions, we actually had on one mission, we had a baby born on the aircraft while we we're flying them back to the to the local hospital in the capital of Tegucigalpa. You're going to have to give us a history lesson. Why was the U.S. military in Honduras? This was Honduras in the early 1980s, and we were sent down there to help the Honduran government um, become more stable and, and to support the people within the country of Honduras. This was also back when Nicaragua, when the Contras uh, and the Nicaraguan Sandinistas were also fighting. Now, we didn't do much with them at all, but we were primarily there to stabilize the Honduran government and to uh, and to bring some American, quote, goodwill to the to Honduras and that area. And El Salvador was going through a civil war at that time as well. And so after Honduras, what other locations did um, you serve? Then, then I went to West Germany. And while I was in West Germany, uh, I did a lot of missions uh, there. That was back when the when the Cold War was going on in East and West Germany. And uh, I was in West Germany is where I met my future wife, Julian Johnson. Um, and so then we both moved back to the States. At that time, I completed my college degree and decided I wanted to go ahead and be a commissioned officer. So I applied and got accepted to the Army Officer Candidate School. And where was that? After That was at Fort Benning, Georgia. And after that, I applied to, to uh, a unit known as the Army Special Operations Aviation, uh, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And uh, I was the first second lieutenant ever taken in that organization. And Julianne, my wife, was also stationed at Fort Campbell at the time. Now you get married and yes, Julianne, your wife, is still in military and you're in the military. Do you all manage to be together much? Yes, ma'am. We actually, uh, as soon as we got to Fort Campbell, she immediately deployed to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. When she got back, we actually came back here to her hometown of Abington, Virginia, and when we got married. Now, during that time, we were both obviously employed on a lot of missions with my unit, and she uh, ended up going uh, off to a uh, Operation Restore Hope, which was in Somalia. You might remember it from the movie Black Hawk Down, and Julianne was there during that time frame. Soon after she returned, we decided that uh, one of the two of us needed to get out. And so she decided to get out and become a teacher while I continued my military career. Then after that, while Julianne was in the military, going to, to school, become a teacher, taking care of our two children, I deployed over to Korea for my first full deployment in Korea. I've been in Korea off and on since the 1980s. And that was my first uh, complete what we call permanent change of station or my first move over there while I left Julianne and the kids back in uh, southern Alabama, where she was pursuing school. After I came back from Germany, we we then went to a couple of stations here in the U.S., Fort Polk, Louisiana. And then we decided to go back as a family back to Korea for my second full tour, and I brought them with me. And then after the second tour in Korea, uh, we went back to my uh, back to Fort Campbell. And then soon after that, we went to uh, Heidelberg, Germany. Now, are you retired from the military now? Have you ever officially retired? Yes, ma'am. I remained in the military for 35 years and retired as lieutenant colonel. But you don't go by the, I asked you before we started the recording, what was your title? And you said civilian government service, but do you still get called colonel or lieutenant colonel in the military? I do by those who used to be in the military and some other things, but not, not really. I just, it's Vernon or Mr. Miles now. 
really go by any particular title anymore. Well, that's your story. Unless we've got, have we forgotten any of the highlights of your career in terms of locations where you served and those kinds no, of things? I've also served many. I've also served many tours down in the southern Philippines, where which is where uh, most of my com- quote combat time was at. We had operations in the southern Philippines that we were doing. And then we've also lived in Japan and England as well. So you've lived all over the world, and now you're back in Abingdon. So tell us why you're in Abingdon, or at least temporarily, before you get deployed again. Well, when we when we when I decided to retire, I went and told him, "Hey, Julianne, I'm retiring. Where would you like to go?" She says, "I miss my mountains. I miss the people. I want to go back home to Abingdon." And so that's why we ended up back here. How long have you been here? Well, we just got back from England last about this time last year, as a matter of fact. We had come back to England before we had. Be between my tours in Japan and England, we actually lived in. Well, Julian actually lived in uh, Bristol when I first retired. Went to Bristol, and I ended up teaching high school down at Tennessee High School in Bristol while she was teaching at the Morrison School. And then I got after two years there, I got a uh, requested to come back to Japan to work in uh, on the Korea um, situation back in 2016 through 2018. We need to say that you're being deployed, but Julianne's staying here. And you might want to mention how she's adjusting to being home and what her plans are for the next year. We've been separated, like I said, for for, for many years together. Unfortunately, that's just the nature of the beast when you're in the military. Um, we've missed a lot of Christmases, a, a lot of birthdays and other events together. So this is just another deployment for me. Julianne's going to stay here. And like I said, she really loves the area. She loves the people that she's here. So she and like I said, we, we both had a have a sense of duty and commitment and service to others. So she's going to stay here in the area. And she's actually going to run for the board of supervisor for the Madison District in Washington County. Um, and so she's going to do extremely well representing the the people of the Madison District in that capacity. Well, she's going to be busy. She's got things to keep her yes. busy then while you're gone. But let's jump to Korea because our time is getting away too quickly. It's just because you have such a rich background to cover, Vernon Miles. Yes, but you are going back to Korea. You said that you're deputy director for plans exercises. We're talking military exercises that the U.S. does with Korea and other allies. What are those exercises like and what will be your role? Yes, ma'am. Um, my role would basically be the overarching exercise director. So, so I'll be working on funding exercises, getting the troops there, finding out how do we take our strategic goals within Korea? What do we want to, what's the signal we want to send uh, in Korea uh, as a as U.S. and uh, translate those into operational and tactical uh, events that we can do? Such an important ally of, of, of the U.S. And that area of Indo-PACOM, uh, Northeast Asia, which have Japan, China, Russia, North Korea, and, and, uh, and South Korea. You know, if you think about it, You've got six most powerful armies in the world, the United States, Russia, China, India, Japan, and Korea. So you have five of those right there in the close vicinity of Korea. And so those exercises mean a lot to the people in that area. And we want to try to make sure that that we establish um, our presence and let our strategic and operational and tactical objectives be met. So that's what I'll be working on as an exercise planner. So my layman's simplistic interpretation, the strategic goals and establishing the presence, that means that we're going to 
have military exercises with our powerful weapons, and we're going to demonstrate to the world that we are strong, we are a force, we're united with Korea, and don't mess with us. Yes, ma'am. And that's basically geared towards 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 anyone that might be a threat to South Korea or or the United States, whether that be 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 North Korea or others. And again, it, it's all about the relationships that we have with those countries in, in that area. How much of a threat is North Korea to South Korea or to the United States? I mean, I guess if anybody's been paying attention to the news in the last few years that uh, we've had some pretty serious uh, rattling of the cages with Korea. And what is the likelihood? What do you, what would you expect right now that you could tell us that might be the first thing North Korea would do, either to us or to South Korea? Well, you have to remember, the Korean War is not over. It's just an armistice that was signed in 1953. So technically, both countries are, are still at war. And it was not just the U.S., it's the United Nations. Matter of fact, in, in Korea, uh, uh, we'll be worth, we will wear three hats. We wear the hat of the United Nations. We wear the hat of Combined Forces Command with South Korea and the United States. And then we have the U.S. Forces Korea as, as well. So we represent all three of those entities there. And it is a, it is a daily constant reminder there. North Korea this year has launched over 40 missiles, the, uh, more than has any other time. He, he averages about since uh, since Kim Jong Un has come into power, he, he averages between ten to 15, about ten to fifteen per year. Now he's jumped this past year to over forty missiles per year, and those missiles are anything from short range missiles to intercontinental ballistic missiles that can reach the east coast of the United States. So he's developing that capability right. And what would happen if he launched an intercontinental missile? What would and you're there? What would be your role? Well, if, if he launches it, then it means that it's, it, it's going to be a, a war on the Korean Peninsula. And, and that war on the Korean Peninsula probably would not stay a local war. And, and for Nama's opinion, that war would probably expand to all of Northeast Asia to include Japan, China, uh, and possibly others. If he launched it towards the United States, that would mean the United States would have to respond. And we would respond uh, from the troops who are in South Korea and the weapons. They would respond from troops in South Korea, ships at sea, from possible bases in Japan. We just don't know. But, uh, but we have been trying to, 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 to decrease his threat to the United States. Matter of fact, in 2016, 2017, the United States deployed a system called THAADS, T-H-A-A-D, which stands for Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System. And the THAADS system, uh, which is capable of, of intercepting missiles, um, it, it was such a, a huge deal, particularly to China, because China now saw this as possibly stopping their missiles too if they were ever to go to the United States. As a matter of fact, China took, took such drastic action against South Korea that one of the largest companies, the South Korean Walmart, Lotte, L-O-T-T-E, they're in the Walmart South Korea, they stopped all imports into China. And China also banned all tourists from going to Korea when they put the THAAD system into Korea. And I don't think that made it into U.S. media. No, ma'am, not a lot of it doesn't. There's a lot of things that, that the U.S. media doesn't uh, always get. Uh, for example, um, a few years ago, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the former president was trying to get, saying that, hey, uh, 
we need Korea to to start paying more of their defense budget, or, or he would possibly look at pulling south or, or pulling troops out, possibly. Well, what a lot of people don't know is the U.S. or Korea paid um, over ten billion dollars to improve uh, the place where I'm be stationed at Camp Humphreys, and that's um, you know that does, doesn't come up. Uh, that a lot of the bases and a lot of support we get in Korea actually comes from the South Korean government. I would imagine that the South Korean military and maybe citizenry, as they knew about it, would be pretty unhappy about those claims that Korea needed to pay more. Yes, ma'am. I mean, it it it, it all depends on where you sit. And so, you know, South South Korean military is a very capable force. And the U.S. It just enhances that capability. I mean, uh, the South Koreans right now have a very capable military, and uh, and and they do do quite well for themselves. One of the big issues that's been coming up recently, though, is South Korea has been under the U.S. promise of nuclear umbrella for many years, but now since the former president, you know, looked at the possibility of possibly withdrawing forces out there, now South Korea is starting to rethink. Maybe we need our own nuclear weapons. So that's a debate that's been going on. As a matter of fact, uh, PBS uh, NewsHour last week had a really good show on it that talked about the, the the South Koreans possibly developing their own nuclear umbrella. And what would that mean, mean for the rest of the war world? What do South Koreans in general feel about the United States? Most of them most of them support the United States. Over 85% of the people in South Korea want U.S. troops and, and, and U.S. support. And it's not just military support. It's also economic support, too. Uh, over the last few years, we've seen a 20% increase of U.S. investment in Korea, but the Koreans have had over a 60% increase in the in, in U.S. economy uh, here, building more factories and more investment in, in the United States. So it's not just military. We have also... Uh, uh, diplomatic and, and economic as well. I guess you you develop very close relationships with the people that you work with. Absolutely. Uh, like I said, in, in my office that I'm going to, we have both Korean and, and various U.S. Uh, military members and civilians all in the same office together. When you're in military and you're assigned like that, do you ever have discussions about policy, like personal discussions of what they think Anything positive or negative, or vice versa? Um, of course, I was just like all offices do. Yes, I mean, but generally, generally that we all have the same beliefs, um, and and so that's that's generally pretty good. A lot of times we talk about, you know, there's been a huge global explosion recently, at least with that I seen within the last twenty years of Korean culture being exported out of Korea. Uh, you have everything from Korean movies winning Oscars to to K-pop to K-dramas. To Korean food, and now uh, I was reading an article the other day that says that now the Korean uh, government is is helping to export the Korean language known as Hangul to the rest of the world. Yeah, and of course that means that you, Vernon Miles, are a huge fan of K-pop. Uh, no, but I'm going to try try to develop <laughs> a K-pop band while I'm over there. <laughs> I think you absolutely should. 
What is it that you like most about the culture and about living there when you're there? One of the things I like a lot about it is, is a sense of trust and the relationship building. You can walk down a street in Korea and stores, which are not that big, uh, well, what do you do? Big, large department stores, but a lot of the stores are small, are, are small stores. And they'll leave stuff out in the streets. And the owner may go out to lunch and come back and his stuff will still be there. No one really steals anything there. It's extremely safe there. For the most part, they're very open and want to learn about you in the American way. Uh, and so they they always like to talk to you. And almost and, and in Korea, like most other nations we've we've been to, you know, it's not hard to get around. English is everywhere. I mean, all the signs are both in, in Korean or, or Hangul and in English. Um, and so it's very easy. And Seoul is one of the most dynamic cities in the world that I've ever been to. Uh, like I said, I've been going to Korea since the 1980s. That's, gosh, it's almost 40 years now. And I've really seen a, a huge growth and development within South Korea. I mean, you have to remember, 70 years ago, and that's not a, you know, that's a lifetime. There was nothing in South Korea. I mean, they had nothing. And today, they're, they're, they're one of the top 10 uh, economic powerhouses in the world. You know, what are the chances, Vernon Miles, that we could talk to you when you get to Korea and after you've been there for a while and get an update? Yes, ma'am. That, that would be fantastic. And I'd like to bring one of my South Korean counterparts on there uh, to also talk to you and, and your audience. I think it's important that people understand uh, what, what's going on in the world. Uh, particularly right now, a lot of our focus, rightfully so, is on Ukraine and Europe. But but Asia and Northeast Asia in particular are always just just one missile launch away. Well, I apologize for not being more informed and asking better questions, but uh, oh, man, it is you. so kind of you to spend time with me and to share your experiences and what you're headed out to do with our listeners. And we will follow up and have another interview later. How about that? Well, that sounds great, ma'am. I look forward to it. All right. Vernon Miles, Deputy Director for Planning with U.S. Forces and Korean Forces, uh, headed out uh, to Korea very soon. Well, let's just get specific. When is it that you leave? Um, we leave in two days. In two days. Well, this yes, interview will run on Sunday after you're gone. It runs on Wednesday, the 25th, the first time. And people can be wishing you safe travels when they hear this interview. Vernon Miles, thank you once again. And we will in with you again soon. So thanks everyone for tuning in. This is WEHC and WISE. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with someone, please consider familiarizing yourself with our podcast site at wehcfm.com. There you will find links to recent shows. The marketing director who talks about the crisis in recruiting people for the Coast Guard and what he has loved about being in the Coast Guard. You'll find the interview about lowering your energy bill for free, where someone comes into your house, does an audit, makes some repairs on site, and charges you nothing. You'll hear a discussion about myths related to Appalachian people. And you'll hear about the organization Crossroads Medical Mission, where they offer free health care to people who can't afford it. You'll hear and find links to political candidates and their discussions of their policies and information on registering to vote. In all of these conversations, I think you'll see good people doing good work, and I think you may be encouraged about the state of our world. Again, consider visiting wehcfm.com, and you can find links to everyone's talk shows and to their previous programs.
I'm Teresa Keller. Thank you so much for tuning in to WEHC and to this conversation. You can find this program Wednesdays at 6, Sundays at 2. Remember, podcasts at wehcfm.com. Thank you, Vernon. Thank you, listeners. See you next time.